0: back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 164, The Laws in Wales Act. In 1509, Henry VIII ascended to the throne, taking up the position his father had fought and won through conquest. The son of York and Lancaster now ruled as the true Tudor rose on the throne, managing the affairs of the Kingdom of England. And it was because he was truly an English king, that his concern for Wales were not founded on some love of the old country or duty to protect his ancient home. Henry throughout his history appears as a man that was many things and had a great deal of interesting things about him. One, he was very much concerned about his legacy, so much so he spent most of his rule worrying about how his throne would be passed down. His desire for a male heir was at the heart of his battles and eventual split with the Catholic Church, which led to so much grief for nearly two hundred years. He was not the heir that the rule was initially intended, as that was to be his brother Arthur. But Arthur had died young, meaning that Henry was now declared the heir at age eleven. He ascended to the throne at age eighteen and ruled for the next thirty-six years. The longest-serving adult king since Edward III, who had ruled consecutively, and that was the first English king to do so in nearly 200 years. Henry VI had reigned a year longer, but his reign was, to say the least, mixed. Also, Henry had the dubious beginning of having become king at the age of one, which meant that he was a king for 16 years while not actually ruling anyone. As a young king, Henry was tall, powerfully built, and a tireless athlete, huntsman, and dancer. He was the image of a virile monarch who would be the envy of all and willing and ready to be active in many ways. His political marriage to his brother's fiancée, Catherine of Aragon, had been a mixed bag from the word go. Henry's ego appeared to be as large as he was. He believed he deserved to live a lavish lifestyle such as other European monarchs. This meant that he created problems for his health and his bank balance, especially for England. Much of his concern about the power of the marcher lords, the church, and how to regain control of his own finances, led him to hire powerful bureaucrats who were very capable and were severe threats to the somewhat pompous lords who likely had it pretty good under the previous regimes. Cardinal Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell were two men who were very concerned about the needs of the kingdom and how best to serve a king who wanted results, not excuses. Throughout the earlier reign of Henry, Wolsey was a key component, setting the tone for a lot of what the king did and creating the alliances and disputes with various European kings to try and gain more power for both the King of England and to protect England from possible invasion from either France or Spain. Wolsey would get himself into trouble, though, in 1525 after a fiasco in Europe and the confrontation with lords at home over the financial demands that were being made. With Wolsey's downfall came concern about an heir, and over the next decade Henry would continue his great matter, as it was called, to solve the various crises that existed at home and abroad. During that time, his mistreatment of his firstborn, Mary, and her mother likely embittered her at her father, as you would likely imagine, she felt aggrieved over the way she was treated by him, and of course the way her mother continued to be abandoned and mistreated by him. It also, as mentioned last episode, had many in Wales upset as Princess Mary had been seen as one of theirs. She was, in effect, the Princess of Wales, filling the role that Arthur had had previously, one that Henry had very briefly been labeled as the Prince of Wales, but with no male heir to that point. There was no obvious Prince of Wales in waiting, and so Mary had been given control of the Council of Wales in the marches, and even at her young age where she had no real influence, it was still seen as her role and thus in that presentation she was seen as being important to the people. Even as the king spent the rest of his life searching for an heir and companion, something he did eventually achieve with Edward Sixth and his wife Jane Seymour, still his life was not easy and it was certainly not filled with joy, as Seymour, who he truly did love, it appears, had passed away shortly after the birth of Edward VI. This was conceived to be quite devastating to Henry, obviously, as he truly did have her in high respect and did love her. She, of course, was not his only wife, was not even close to his only wife, and wasn't even the first that he broke away for. One of the reasons that academics think that he truly did love her was because for the rest of his life, her relatives were put in positions of power and control that showed that they must have had his trust. Something that, of course, would come back to bite the Tudors in later years as they created their own level of problems for them. In the meantime, Henry began his break with the church over this ideal and desire to split from Catherine of Aragon, and then successive attempts to rid himself of various wives. And this then created problems in Wales and with the Marcher Lords. In order to fix this and to deal with some of these problems, Thomas Cromwell was hired to deal with the break in the church and further deal with issues which had been arising in Wales over justice and fairness. Cromwell, as chief administrator, was tasked to seek solutions to the Welsh problem. His solution was to annex or incorporate Wales, along with other significant changes at the same time, which led to the creation of England as a modern state. The general lawlessness in Wales had been an issue for a while, as outlined in the last episode. It had been abetted and at times encouraged by marcher lords and their officials. The wheels of justice were spread across so many different governing jurisdictions that it had created pockets of refuge from justice for these criminals. In 1531, Dr. James Denton, Chancellor of the Council of Wales and the Marchers, called for the reform of the marches to no longer be semi-independent, but for them to become shires like the rest of England and northern Wales, But, as Henry was in the middle of changing wives, he was unwilling to make an additional enemy out of the marcher lords, so nothing at that point came. It would instead be left to Thomas Cromwell. The first appeal would be made to Cromwell in 1532 by Thomas Phillips, who petitioned him to help sort out the raging lawlessness in Wales, as it was described, likely spurred on by the need to execute Rhys Ap Griffith, the crown had known for a while that it could not leave things as they were. Over the next few years, attempts were made to try and bring order back to Wales. In 1533, Thomas Holt, the king's attorney, recommended a number of legal changes, one of which was to change the judgments being faced by murderers and cattle thieves who were generally allowed to get away without facing real punishment. Typically, this was done by giving them fines and in some cases, giving them pardons. Remember, this is an era where, rather than jail time, capital punishment was the common solution in these cases. It was said that Bishop John Vesey, who was the president of the Council of Wales in the marches at the time, was too weak to deal with the problems being faced by the council. His unwillingness to use executions, relying, as he often did, on fines and other methods to try and deal with the problem had led to an expectation and a description that he was soft on crime, something which in that period he certainly would have possibly have been perceived to be. In 1534, Bishop Roland Lee was put in charge of the council, likely to be firmer with those criminals, and at the same time, Henry's conflict with the church began to hit the day-to-day life in Wales as it did England. Many supporters of the church were at odds with the government, and combined with that, the concerns of Henry about the possible intervention from forces outside of England, i.e. Spain or France, he once again felt an eager push to a strong intervention in the countryside to try and deal with some of these problems. Lee's task was not just to carry out criminal justice issues, but he was also aggressively sent against those who supported the Pope. Rather than a slight adjustment, Lee was a complete overhaul of the old methods, and the signs at the end were coming for much of what England and Wales had been since the conquest. Harsher punishments for everyone from criminals to perceived accomplices As an example, one of the groups targeted were Ferry boatmen who apparently had been a part of moving people at night to uh, evade justice. He also targeted jurists who had decided to shirk their duties either by giving rulings that were perceived as being bad or as letting off just too many people from the expectation that they would be convicted. These acts began to represent much in the way the Crown was neutering the marcher lords. Gone was the control and semi-independence. Officials were now able to aggressively pursue criminals across other jurisdictions, and the idea of independence for the lords had been overwritten piece by piece. For some in Wales, this was perceived as going against Welsh law, but that really was not the target at the time. The real target was the power of the marcher lords, as Lee continued to convict and execute as many of those murderers and cattle rustlers as he could get his hands on. it. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors' ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. began to bring the issue forward about what to do with Wales. Whether it actually made the land more peaceful, of course, is hard to say, but certainly the fear that would have been the motivating factor at avoiding lawbreaking became something that was present. There was also the reality that many during this period would have seen this as a good thing because it would have brought about the end to perceived criminality. One should note that this was then copied in other places in the future, or at least argued to do very similar, because it was seen as such a great success, and so many thought that that was the way to resolve criminal issues, very similar to ideals we've seen in the past. Lee was no great policeman, though. He felt that the Welsh were to blame for the law-breaking and that they had allowed this to happen, thus they were wild and needed to be tamed and broken by English justice. He never trusted the local Welsh officials, and was opposed to giving them any sort of self-determination, which of course would be against what Cromwell and Henry wanted. Cromwell was not burdened by this old-fashioned position. He was very much wanting to integrate the Welsh people, and particularly the Welsh nobility, into the mix of English rule. He was preparing both countries for a radical change to create a very different country going forward. Some English fought this, believing that giving the Welsh more influence in government was allowing the inmates to run the asylum, to use a term. Obviously, the prejudice of the past had not gone away with the arrival of the Tudors to the throne, no matter how much Welsh bards tried to portray them as one of their own. But Cromwell appears to have known that, which his fellow lords did not, If they were to ever end Welsh resistance, the only way that could happen would be to integrate them into the system. The failure of the English since 1282 was the belief that their own superiority over the Welsh was somehow the best way to treat them, and that to consistently not trust them would allow them to control them. It created massive issues and, worse yet, created grounds for continued hostility amongst the nobility in Wales and a breeding ground for rebellion amongst both them and the populace, something that was obvious to Henry's court, especially to Cromwell. It was in the midst of this that the Act of Wales began to take shape and in 1536 the royal consent was given to the first part of this act one that would be done and repeated in 1542. In the opening stanza, Henry's position on Wales became very clear. To quote, Some rude and ignorant people have made distinctions and diversity between the king's subjects of this realm and his subjects of the said dominion and principality of Wales, whereby great discord, variance, debate, division, murmur, and sedition hath grown between said subjects. His Highness, therefore, of a singular zeal, love, and favour, that he beareth towards his subjects, and of the said dominion of Wales, minding and intending to reduce them to the perfect order, notice, and knowledge of his laws and of this realm, and utterly extirp all and singular the sinister usages and customs differing from the same, to bring the said subjects of his realm and his said Dominion of Wales to an amicable concord and unity, and therefore that his said country or Dominion of Wales shall be, stand and continue, ever from henceforward, incorporated, united, and annexed, to and with his realm of England. The key to this was twofold, ending the two-state approach to these realms, allowing the Welsh population to be treated as if they were English, have all of the same rights and responsibilities, and of course be taxable as the same. Second, it brought an end to the marcher lordships, establishing along the borders of Wales shires to take their place, bringing them firmly into the fold of the crown. No longer would the marcher lords be able to influence the crown as they had done in the past, as both heirs in potentia or rebels in waiting. Instead, all parties would be a part of England, and importantly, under the influence of the crown. Another addition to this act would be the pardons that would only be given now by the king, removing a very important point of power for local officials, one that was rife with bribes, and one that was controlled exclusively by these officials. The fallout, of course, was that Welsh, as a language, was completely abandoned officially, something that I think was already practically the case anyway, let's be honest. If you wanted to hold office or titles in Wales, you must speak English, because all business, legal deliberations, and court administration was now being done in one language. King Henry's revolution in church and state now hit Wales as well. No longer would the Welsh be excluded, but at the cost of their individual sense of self. The concept of Wales as a political entity was truly at an end, at least for centuries to come. Much of the modern nation of Wales owes its nature and its primarily English-speaking cultural influence because of these changes. This is not necessarily what Henry was attempting, but that was the reality of the situation. With no political Welsh place, it would be as if the only way for the culture to go forward was to become immersed in English ideals, in English dogma, in English religion, and importantly, in English politics. Henry's other great change was that, of course, of the Anglican Church, which had the unintended consequences for Wales as well. It brought the big change, of course, of eliminating or removing, eventually, the Catholic Church from predominance across all of England and Wales, but as well it created a desire to translate religious texts into local languages, which would also mean that we would see the development of the Bible in Welsh, something that would be key to the survival of the language. Make no mistake, this act and its successor in 1442 was welcomed by Welsh gentry, a group which had become more and more London-focused with the ascension of Henry VII and continued to grow over the next decades. Their focus was, as it had been for the last 100 years, to gain acceptance and political power. Unification, therefore, allowed this group to achieve what they had desired. They were now as English as anyone. And with that... I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. I do try and answer as soon as I get any replies. And as well, you can reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And can Firstly, if you would like to help contribute to the financing of this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. It is appreciated, not expected, but thank you everyone who does contribute. I really appreciate it. You guys are the reason why we're able to keep going with this podcast, and I look forward to continuing to pursue this in further detail as we go along and we start to talk more and more about the changes that are going to come to Wales as it reaches this unification standpoint but until next time everybody take care have a great day we'll talk to you later bye this has been a distractions media production for more info you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com